All right. Well, I want to uh, join my voice to Jeff's and just say how good it is to be in a room of something other than chairs. And uh, that's, that's good for my soul, good for my heart. And, uh, and I'm, I am so thankful. Um, I know we had a, a great crowd earlier. It may be a little warm now out on the South Lawn, but uh, we had a good little crowd out there this morning. So there were some folks that took advantage of that. And then I know we've got uh, tons of families uh, and folks online that are joining us this morning. So one church, lots of different places, but gathered together in community and uh, doing what God created us to do. Well, I want to do something right before I get into the message, and uh, we, we actually started this a couple of weeks ago, um, with, just with all of the hostility and confusion and uh, tension that all of us are experiencing and hearing about and maybe facing in some occasions, like all of that is coming at us. And, and I just thought, you know, the church has this very unique opportunity to be a voice that speaks into all of that in a way that no other group, no other organization, no other entity on earth can. And there's a word that describes what that voice is like. It's not the only word, but it's a great word. And uh, the word is peacemaker. And it's, it's one of those definitive marks of the church that regardless of what's happening anywhere, the church is called to be peacemakers in the midst of that. It's supposed to mark us in a big way. And so what we began to think about as leadership is how can we just equip ourselves, be encouraged, be reminded, be instructed about practically how do we do that? Uh, If you're like me and you get in a tense situation, if I'm not intentional, man, that can go all kinds of different directions. That can get real bad real fast. So I want to be prepared. I want to be mindful And uh, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the rubber band tool from Peacemaker Ministries. I don't know if you caught that, but um, we actually made these wristbands. We've got them on the chairs in here, so grab one if you want to. But this wristband, this rubber band was to remind us that tension, it can be a destructive thing, but it can be a great thing. And, And these wristbands, rubber bands, they're meant to live in tension but hold things together. So that's the first thing. If we're going to be peacemakers, we have to live in tension with the goal of holding things together. This morning, I want to give you four G's of constructive conflict. These are just four things to keep in mind when you find yourself in that tense moment with a a friend or a family member, a spouse, a neighbor, a coworker. Here's some things to keep in mind. First of all, glorify God. Now, that isn't the first thing that usually comes to my mind when I'm getting into a tense conversation, but wouldn't it be great if it did? So 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or have an argument, do all to the glory of God. Wouldn't that change things? Wouldn't that change the direction that conversation takes? Secondly, get the log out of your own eye. Right? No, we get in tense situations and boy, it's just so obvious what's wrong with you when God very much wants to do something in me. And so I want to be mindful of the log 
in my own eye before I ever start poking around in somebody else's eyes. So glorify God. Get the log out of your eye. Gently restore. So usually when there's conflict, there's probably some kind of offense or misunderstanding or something. And that relationship and perhaps that person needs to be restored. That's the goal of good, healthy conflict is restoration, not winning. So Matthew 18 lays out a great process. We'll follow that process. Man, we can get to some great places of restoration. And then lastly, the last G is go and be reconciled. Reconciliation is um, like resetting a bone. It's like being made right, realigning And uh, I have never found that to go very well without forgiveness. And so as we go to be reconciled with someone, we ought to be ready to perhaps give and receive forgiveness wherever that offense took place. So hopefully that's an encouragement to you. We as a church, we want to be peacemakers. No matter what's happening in the world, no matter how crazy it gets, we want that to mark us as a church. Okay, well, we are in Luke 16, as Jeff mentioned. Uh, such an interesting chapter. He and I have been talking about this. You know, the text just comes to us. If you're new, like we just go through books of the Bible, and so we don't get to pick and choose, like, ooh, I really like that passage or not. It's just whatever's there, that's what we cover. And 16 has been one of the most challenging, Jeff, wouldn't you say? of all the chapters of Luke so far, but uh, we're going to tackle it yet again. Now, this chapter is interesting because it uh, begins and ends with a parable. So there's two of them. The first, Jeff covered last week, first 13 verses about the dishonest manager. Then uh, Jeff is going to cover the second parable next week, and that is the rich man and Lazarus. So two money-related Uh, material possession related parables and then right in the middle there is this insertion of five verses and most commentators will tell you they're not quite sure how they ended up there I mean obviously the Holy Spirit was inspiring Luke he's compiling all kinds of things and apparently the Holy Spirit felt like these five verses needed to be inserted in between those two parables now the challenge is us figuring out why What purpose do they serve in here? And I'll just be honest with you. I'm not dogmatic on this at all, but I just thought these five verses sound proverbial. What I mean by that is Jesus is going to tell these two stories, and in the midst of it, there are these wise sayings that the Holy Spirit, through Luke, wanted us to catch so that we would think rightly about all of this other instruction. So to get us in a proverbial mindset, I want to read some verses from the book of Proverbs. Just like this is a a father, Solomon, with his son, and he's trying to give him some warnings, some wisdom about the people around him. Catch this. Uh, This is Proverbs 1, 10 through 19. Solomon writes, My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole. Like those who go down to the pit, 
We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We will have one purse. So that Paul or Solomon talking to his son, saying, You got people around you, they're gonna entice you to, to throw yourself in with them to harm others. My son, verse 15, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths, for their feet run to evil. And they make haste to shed blood, for in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird. But these men, they lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. So if I kind of put that under one big banner. Solomon sitting down with his son. He's like, son, son, look at me now. You're going to be surrounded by a lot of people and some of them are going to call you to do things that are going to be harmful for others. But but even worse, it's going to be harmful for them. And if you join with them, it's going to be harmful for you. Don't be like those guys. Be something different. That's That's the tone of what Solomon is saying to his son. And I think that's what these five verses are saying to us because what what Luke is going to highlight as the narrator, as the compiler, is this group of people. And he's going to be saying in a big picture way, don't be like those guys. They're destroying their lives. And if you go with them, you will experience the pain and heartache that they will experience as well. So... With that, are we in a, in a right frame of mind here? Let's get into the text. Um, I want to finish up with the last verse of last week's passage to get us into this week's passage. So Jesus finished the parable of the dishonest manager this way. He said, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one or love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, period. That is as dogmatic as it gets. That's as definite. It's like you're going to have to choose. One of these two things is going to rule your life. So you got to decide. Then Luke inserts a description of part of the crowd. Look at verse 14. The Pharisees. Okay, so, that, so we know there's some Pharisees in the crowd. They're listening in. It says they heard all these things, but, but what's right in the middle, this is the most important. The Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things. Now, before we start to see how they responded, let's think about these guys. These guys just didn't enjoy having a little money. Um, they didn't appreciate the, the gift, the goodness of it. It wasn't like cash was something that they could just kind of do with or without, and they were content and fine, and like, I'm just going to joyfully go through life, and if I have a little extra, I'll do some good with Like, that's not their mindset. These guys are lovers of money. They're obsessed with it. They crave for it. Accumulation is the aim of their life. 
And here's why. Because money is their God. Like that is what they look to for everything. That's the answer to living in a broken world. And isn't it alluring? Like, isn't money kind of one of those things that, boy, if you, if you got some of it, if you got a little extra, you just, you just feel all right, don't you? Somehow that, that money can give you some security, some power, some status, some feeling of control that you don't have when you don't have it. So it's an alluring, counterfeit God. Something easily that we can give our lives to. Listen to what Paul says about chasing after that God. 1 Timothy 6, 9, and 10. But those who desire to be rich, like the Pharisees, they fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires. We're going to see some of that this morning. And those plunge people into ruin and destruction. Don't be like those guys. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Several uh, months ago, we covered Luke 12, where Jesus was addressing some other financial uh, issues related again to the Pharisees. And here's what he said in Luke 12, 15. Take care... And be on your guard against covetousness, the love of money. Why? Because life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. So you and I were created for life. Like, isn't that the gift that God gives all of us to breathe and have our being and go, go about this world that He created? So we want life. And we'll chase it any number of places. He actually tells us where it is. And then we decide, do we believe him or not? This chasing after money, this covetousness, this greed or avarice. This is is the idea that we can find life on our own. And we do it on our own terms. And it's so accessible. Sometimes it's more alluring than those things that are less accessible, harder to believe in because maybe they are unseen. But know this, according to Jesus, gathering up stuff, money or otherwise, will never give us the life that we really want. These Pharisees didn't believe that. They were absolutely convinced That money was the answer. And so they dedicated everything that they did. All of their efforts were around accumulation to uh, support their kingdoms, their little kingdoms. The Bible calls that idolatry. It's having something as God or rule in our life other than God. Obviously, that's prohibited, but the longer that that goes on unaddressed, the longer that stays in a person's life, the more deceived and disillusioned they become. And that's the picture that we're going to get this morning of these Pharisees. Go back to verse 14. 
Luke says the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, they heard all these things that, that Jesus was teaching about stuff. And look how they responded. They ridiculed Jesus. Now, they didn't know what we know in the sense that they're learning about Jesus on the fly. So there's a lot going on there that we have the benefit of reading about and learning about and studying, right? So I'll, I'll concede that. But the bottom line is they've been following this guy around for three years. They've heard him teach. They've seen his miracles. They know who he knows who he is. And yet, they treat him like a joke. This ridiculing, this is like turning your nose up. It's, it's utter contempt. It's mockery. So they've made up their mind about Jesus, but what's so interesting is they're doing exactly what Jesus said they would do if they had something as God in their life other than God. They hate the one who's bringing this to light. They're devoted to their money, not to the one who claims to be their God. They hated and despised God in the flesh. So let's pause for just a minute and just for a quick kind of moment of application. Because I I think if you're like me, I'm like, well, I, I don't treat Jesus like a joke. Okay? I, and I get that. You probably don't. But let's not just let ourselves off the hook. Because I think Jesus wants more from us than just like a nod. He, here's some questions to think about. Do we take what he says, not only about money, but everything else, do we take it with the seriousness that it deserves? Do we strive to follow his lead regardless of how costly it might be because we believe that Jesus always wants what's best for us? Do we really believe that? And do we live accordingly? Or do we qualify and minimize and soften the demands that come with following Christ? I mean, he said to his disciples, follow me. And there was a period at the end of that sentence. <laughs> you know, it's, and in some other places he said, and by the way, it's going to be hard. But there'll be no better way to live. You will never once regret following hard after Christ. Not only now, but for all of eternity. Do we selectively obey what we prefer or do we abandon ourselves to passionate obedience wherever that may take us? Man, those are sobering questions. But the Pharisees, Jesus is a joke. They're not following him anywhere. But we claim to be Christ followers. So there's got to be a difference. We don't want to be like those guys, but what do we need to be like? We'll get there. Here's the deal. Jesus asks for nothing less than all of who we are and all of what we have. That's what he asks for. And he promises that we will get in return in the context of eternity more 
than we can possibly imagine. So in response to the ridicule of the Pharisees, Jesus exposes their duplicitous approach to life. And what was happening is their love for money had led to a spiritually deadly delusion. They literally believed that salvation was for sale. And they lived that way. They, they ordered their life around bartering with God. And, and I'm going to show you how they do that. Look at verse 15. Jesus said to them, so they've ridiculed him. Now he's responding, you Pharisees, you're those who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your heart. You're not pulling anything over on him. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Now, commentators will tell you this is like the core central failure of these religious leaders. As I mentioned, they're living as if salvation is for sale. They believe that they can manage God like they manage people. And that's what they do. They're in positions of power. They do have wealth. They can move things around. They can manipulate things to be whatever they want them to be. And they think they can do the same thing with God. Their deal was to keep up righteous appearances. It was to put their piety on display for everyone to see so that people think a certain way about them. They would give extravagant gifts when everybody's looking so that it, it demonstrates their great generosity. They would pray these flowery, theologic, like huge word prayers just so that everybody's going, wow, they are like super, super holy. They loved that, but here's the kicker. Their thought was, in light of what everybody here thinks about me, and in light of my impression, God must think the same. God must be really impressed with me. He must think I've really got it going on. Their problem was, it's like, God's not looking at the outside. He's looking at the heart. And he knows what's there. He's no, he knows why you do what you do. He knows what's driving that. Now, I think these guys talk to themselves a lot. I think they, they kind of gave themselves pep talks to try and deal with what had to be some serious confusion internally. I think they would tell themselves, you know, I'm, I'm kind of an exception. I, I'm better than the average so and so. I don't do as much as they do. And, and like people really think something of me. But here's the deal when you're talking to yourself, telling yourself stuff that makes you feel better about you or what you're doing doesn't change the condition of your heart. Like it is what it is. And you and I either live in honesty about that before God and others, or we don't. And not living that way doesn't change anything from God's perspective. 1 Samuel 16, 7. The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Proverbs 16, 5. Everyone who is arrogant in heart, like the Pharisees, is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not Go unpunished. 
Now, it, it was interesting to me when Jesus confronted them about this, this approach, he associates self-justification with self-exaltation. So, both of these are incredibly offensive to a holy God, but here's how they work. So, self-justification is me sort of bringing all of my evidence to bear to say, here's why I'm such a great guy and why God ought to be obligated to bring me into his kingdom. That's self-justification. But what it is, is it's self-exaltation because it's saying, hey God, I'm way better than you think I am. And you owe me. Both of those are incredibly offensive to God because, again, he sees the reality of what's going on in here. And unless he affects what's going on in here, then you and I just stay in that same condition, regardless of how nice things might look on the outside. That word abomination, that is a strong term of rejection. And it's not because God can't receive the worst of sinners because he can, can't he? It's because of their unwillingness to acknowledge their need. These guys would not do that. Now, true justification, because that's really what we're getting at here. They were justifying themselves, basically using the opinions of humanity as their credentials. True justification isn't the product of public opinion. There's no campaigns. There's no polls. It's not like, yeah, but look at what all these people think about me. It is just straight up heart condition. Justification is a legal term. It's a legal thing with God. It's him declaring a sinner not guilty. And it's not because that sinner finally got themselves together and cleaned everything up. It's because they came to him helpless and hopeless and said, Dear God, I need you to do for me what I can't do for myself. Please forgive me. And then here's what happens. God justifies, in other words, he wipes away any evidence of sinfulness in that person's life. It's as if they never sin, but not only that, it's better. It's also as if that person had always done what is right. That's the righteousness that gets transferred from Christ to us when we place our faith in him. Isn't that amazing? That is justification. And that is not available to those who are unwilling to admit their need and ask for help. That's the condition of these Pharisees. So any attempt at self-justification is an abomination to God because it denigrates the justifying, atoning work of Christ on the cross. That's why it's so offensive. Because it's, it's the suggestion that we can improve upon what Christ has done on our behalf. Now, none of this stuff that I've been talking about or that Jesus is highlighting here should have been a surprise to these Pharisees. These are the holy guys. They know the Bible. They, of all people, should have anticipated everything that came at them in the person of Christ and 
prior to that. But, but they obviously missed it. They rejected what God had revealed, and Jesus points that out. He gives them a little history lesson here, beginning in verse 16. He says, The law and the prophets were until John, that is John the Baptist. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. Verse 17, But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. So, let me say this. These two verses, seriously complicated and confusing. And so we'll just all admit that. We'll just all say together, we're going to struggle here a little bit. But we're going to do our best to understand what Jesus is doing. Remember, he's talking to Pharisees. These are religious experts. They should know their history. So he's just pointing this out. And it's very compressed, it's somewhat cryptic, it's not obvious, but this is God's redemptive plan. The law and the prophets, that represents the Old Testament for the most part. And that anticipates God's kingdom and a savior king. So, right, you've got creation, you've got the fall, and then every bit everything that comes after that is God's solution to man's problem. His provision of a Messiah. That's the law and the prophets. These guys should have known that. They did, but they rejected it or neglected it. John the Baptist comes along. He is the forerunner of the Messiah. He's the one that announces, here is the lamb who takes away the sin of the world, right? So he sees God's provision He anticipates the arrival of the kingdom. And then after that, Jesus is declaring the good news that God's kingdom is at hand. And he's like, and I'm here. I'm your guy. I'm God's answer to your problem. And all you have to do is trust in me. A a quick word about the end of verse 16. There's quite a bit of... uh, interpretive uh, debate over what this this phrase can say two different things. It can say, as it's translated here, everyone forces his way into it, which is kind of the idea that humanity is kind of surging into the kingdom, and that might be negative or positive. It can also be translated that Jesus is inviting with great urgency people to come into the kingdom. I lean that way just because that was the message of the kingdom. That's what Jesus was always doing, was inviting people to come in. But here's what he's trying to say to the Pharisees. Here's the history. Here's the work of God on your behalf. I'm inviting everyone to come in, but make no mistake. You guys who know the Bible, not one bit of it is going to erode in terms of the standard for getting in. Now, here's why that's important. See, these guys used Old Testament law for their own purposes. So they kind of manipulated and moved things around and kind of did whatever they could do to have it say what they wanted it to say to get the results that they wanted to get. And part of what Jesus is saying here is, listen, you guys... 
you know God is coming after people. God wants to bring people into the kingdom. But the standard, regardless of what you do with it, isn't changing. It is fixed. It is unalterable. Now, why is that so important? Without the standard of Old Testament law, you and I don't really get the idea that we're sinners. See, if we have the idea that we can perform well enough to buy God off like salvation is for sale, then what do we have any need for a Savior? We'll just do it ourselves. And that's exactly what these guys were suggesting. They gave the idea that they could live up to the law, which was just, that completely defies its whole purpose. The purpose of the law is literally to gut us of any faith in ourselves. And when we get to that place, then we reach out for God's gracious, merciful hand. And he does for us what we can't do for ourselves. That's why this is such a violation. That's why you don't want to be like these guys. Because their destiny is destruction because they're hoping in themselves. And that's the last thing that God wants for any of us. Now to, real, to reveal just how far these Pharisees had drifted, Jesus highlights one of the most profound perversions of God's law and the heartbreaking consequences of allowing material possessions to take priority over godly affections. This is, this is what they're doing, and this is how Jesus exposes it. It's in verse 18. This is why this feels proverbial, and this is going to feel like it comes out of left field, but let's just tackle it. Verse 18, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now, understandably, you and I are reading along, and we get in this little section, and we're like, okay, wait a minute, I'm sorry, were, were we talking about money or were we talking about Old Testament law? Or what? So now we're talking about marriage and divorce. Like, how did we get here? What, what's going on? So let me try and explain. The religious leaders of Israel would distort the law of God, even that which related to marriage for their own personal gain. So what marriage became was sort of this cultural commodity they could be bought and sold. They would literally tell somebody, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Oh, you want to move on to a better version of him or her? Well, I can take care of that. Just give me a good reason and I'll, I'll set you free. You can have whatever you want to. So these guys took one of the most sacred, precious gifts in all of creation and just turned it into currency for their own gain. Do you think that might have been offensive to a holy God? Now, here's why he gave the gift of marriage. It isn't just for companionship, although it is that. This precious gift of marriage was just a glimpse. It's not a full, it's not a perfect picture, but it's a glimpse of what God is like, the triune, Father, Son, Holy Spirit living in unity. 
That's what, that's what marriage is a picture of. It's supposed to draw us in and celebrate the oneness and the mystery that is our God. Not only that, marriage is this beautiful picture of covenant love between one man and one woman. And guess what that's supposed to point to? The committed, steadfast, unconditional covenant love of God for a people that have been unfaithful from day one. That's the gift. That's the picture. And that's what they had perverted. And Jesus is saying, listen, you guys are treading on some really, really thin ice. You have taken one of God's most sacred gifts and you've turned it into personal financial gain to the destruction of homes. And listen, I grew up in a broken home. I know what that's like. I know how hard that is. And, and please understand, this, this isn't a statement as much about divorce as it is about what we do with the good gifts that God gives us. These religious leaders traded sacred entrustments for secular satisfaction. And they promoted that with everybody they led. Now, just as an aside, because I don't want anybody to misunderstand as they leave today. I know this is a delicate subject. This is not a brief, this is not a comprehensive statement on marriage and divorce. That's not the intention of it being included here. This is a confrontation of the perversion of these Pharisees. There are other passages that do speak more comprehensively to marriage and divorce. I taught Matthew 5, 31 and 32 in great detail. So if you want to hear a biblical perspective on marriage and divorce, that's a place to go. Matthew 19, also comprehensive statements about this. But, but what Jesus is addressing here is how utterly careless these religious leaders had become because of their love for money. I'll just remind us again, 1 Timothy 6, 9 and 10, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people, marriages, families, children into ruin and destruction. I don't know how to sum up this any other way, but just don't be like those guys. They're destroying their lives, and you and I don't have to follow suit. There is another way. There is a place to find life, and it is not in the things of this world. It's in a God who loves us so lavishly, so graciously, with such kindness. I want to invite us to ask the question, so what? And I recognize, um, like the whole message is like, don't be like those guys, and that's not super encouraging. Uh, we definitely don't want to be like those guys, but, but I also want to end with, like, so what do we want to be like? Uh, wh what do we want our lives to be like? How do we want to walk out of here today? And I, I thought uh, 
the Beatitudes are just such a beautiful, vivid portrait of the opposite of this life that these leaders had led. So I want to read this to you. And I just want you to prayerfully just like the Lord sees your heart. He knows what's there. So just open, man, just open it up. Invite him to speak through this beautiful portrait of life and see what sticks. See what you can really take hold of as you go forward and go after the life God intended. So just prayerfully listen as I read this over you out of Matthew 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn over what they know to be true of themselves in their hearts, their need, their loss. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst not for monetary gain, not to accumulate the trinkets of this world, but blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let me uh, close us in prayer. Lord, I thank you for that vivid, encouraging picture of real life. And I thank you that all of those things can be had because of the love of our Savior, His sacrificial death on a cross. Lord, thank you for that precious, precious gift. And so, Lord, we say today um, we are needy. And as enticing as the things of this world may be, Lord, set our hearts fixed on you, on, on your goodness, your grace, your mercy, your sufficiency, your provision. Lord, set our gaze on, on that. And by faith we say today, we love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And as we sang earlier, Lord, we surrender all. And I, I know we'll have to say it again tomorrow, and the day after, and the day after. But today we say, 
we surrender all, have all of us, and do as you please for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Awesome. Well, man, so good <laughs> to be with you guys. And again, everywhere that we are gathered, uh, good, good, good to be together. Uh, two quick reminders as you leave today. Um, registration for next Sunday will open, I think, just shortly after the service. So we, we need you to do that, if you will, so that we can make sure we stay within our guidelines there. And then also, um, if you didn't grab one of these wristbands, um, we would love for you to get one. Let that be an encouragement to you. Together is better. We need to be reminded of that. And also, we want to be peacemakers. And so maybe let that wristband be a reminder of peacemaking for you as you walk through a pretty mixed up world uh, this week. So love you guys. Can't wait to see you next week. Have an awesome uh, day and week. And uh, we'll see you next Sunday.